0: Crafting a Revolution, the podcast. My name is Katie Freeman, and I'm your host. Every Wednesday and Friday, I bring you interviews of female and non-binary makers of all kinds from all over the world. Today's guest is Stacy Mott, who I had on previously with her counterpart, Eleanor, as the ladies who would. Uh, collaborative duo. Uh, and last Wednesday, I had Eleanor's uh, solo episode, and this Wednesday is Stacy's solo episode. So excited to get to talk to each of them individually and learn all about uh, their individual stories of how they got to where they're at. So, Stacy is a woodworker, sculptor, artist. Um, slash almost archaeologist uh, slash world traveler. Um, Just a really interesting story and journey to get to where she's at. So I know you're going to enjoy this interview with her. Before we hop on into it with Stacey, I want to give a big shout out and thank you to the patrons over on Patreon. So thank you so much. Lee Runyon at Lee Runyon, Annette at 513 Woodworks, Katie Thompson at Women of Woodworking, Kevin, Lefty's Woodshop, Christy, Twisted Twine, Jeremy at Jeremy Spice, Sammy at uh, Go Sammy Lee, Sven, Dwarf Size Workshop, Rachel, Moody Makes, Bonnie, Tool Mom Bonnie, Tool Mom Store.com, Laura, Oakley Soap Company, Mary Lou, Made by Mary Lou, Brandy, Studio, Obey, Lee, the Rainbow Carver, Ellen, Little Bear Furniture, and Ethan, Ethan Carter Designs. Thank you all so very much for your continued and ongoing support, helping me to produce two episodes a week, every week. If you would like to get your name added to this list, you certainly can. Just head on over to patreon.com forward slash Crafting Revolution. And uh, your name will get read as a, and I think at the top of the episode, every episode. And I should also note, this is the 200th episode, which is, which is pretty sweet. So I still haven't figured out what we're going to do to celebrate 200 episodes, uh, but that will be coming soon. And you'll want to watch out for that over on Instagram at crafting a revolution there Uh, check stories and posts and whatnot to see what will be going on to celebrate hitting 200 episodes all right let's head on into the episode with Stacy. and um, I'm going to start again by asking you to introduce yourself if you would do that yeah um,
1: I'm Stacey Mott, I am an artist and a woodworker and one half of Ladies Who Wood, which is a collaboration with Eleanor Rose, Eleanor Ingrid Rose, as she
0: likes to be called. <laughs> awesome. Um, all right, so I'm going to start with a pretty broad question, which is, what's, what is your story? Where did you grow up and how did you get to where you are right now?
1: Um, it was a really circuitous route. I started doing this pretty late in life, comparatively, I guess. Um, I grew up in outside of Fresno in California. Um, My dad's a farmer. His dad was a farmer. So it's a family farm situation. Um, And I didn't take art classes until my late 20s. Um, So I was doing like the math and science thing. And um, yeah, I went to college, uh, studying history and anthropology. And or kind of nothing at first. I did the whole, you know, um, gen ed thing and I failed out almost immediately. Um, (laughs) and then I went to city college for a long time and that's when I discovered anthropology and I really loved it. Um, and I ended up at San Francisco state university and, um, I was pretty close to graduating and I felt like I didn't really know anything about the world. And, um, I was very naive and pretty emotionally immature and, just, um, yeah, I'd never been anywhere or done anything. And I was learning about the past, but I couldn't contextualize it in the present. And so I dropped out again. (laughs) And um, I was working at Borders Bookstore full time, and I was getting promoted pretty quickly. And so I decided I was going to travel. And so every summer, I would, well, every spring, I would spend my tax return on a ticket to a place I'd never been. And then I would just go and I did that for a long time. Um, And then I was taking all these photos of these places I was going and they were just so awful. Um, and I knew that and I was like, How do, you know, I really wanna be able to share these. And this was before Instagram, you know, it was like for my own personal records, I guess. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so I started taking photography classes at City College and just fell in love with it. And so I took more art classes. And then when I turned 30, I decided that I was going to give this whole art thing a shot. And so that's when I went to
0: art school. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now I have the, like so many questions. <laughs> um, first, I guess, like what drew you to what drew you to anthropology to start off with? Um,
1: I don't know. I mean, I was taking, like, I think. I don't know, everyone who is graduating from high school should know that gen ed is a slog and you just have to get through it and then you can start taking the interesting classes. And I didn't know that. And so I was just kind of bored in college or in, you know, city college. And then I took this anthropology class. And I guess, you know, the thing that I was most interested in was the history of anthropology because it's this really predatory history and that opened up the history of all of the sciences. And um, yeah, I was just intrigued by that and intrigued by the way that humans have tried for centuries, to understand, to understand other cultures, and have always exoticized them, or you know, ascribed meaning where there was none, or treated them as in, as um, inferior. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, wow, I I just couldn't believe the the depth of this really <laughs> awful history. And I was, yeah, I don't know. I, and then I have this really great uh, professor, and I became president of the anthropology club, and I just kind of found a group of people that really. Um, I don't know, like challenged me in, in ways that I hadn't been challenged before Mm -hmm. in higher education, I guess. Um, yeah, I was just really interested in, in the flawed ways that humans have tried to understand other humans. And I think that informed my or still informs my creative work, like all of that history and anthropology training. Like I learned how to research in that time. And, um, yeah, like when I was, you know, about to graduate at SF State, I had all these incredible professors and I just couldn't see myself doing it. Like I was so I was painfully shy. I was really insecure. I never spoke up in class. And I was like, well, I can't. Obviously, I can't do this. Right. And it also led to the dropping out. Um, but then when I started doing the art thing, I was really interested in personal stories and how kind of objects t- can tell the story of a person's life and just, yeah, personal narrative in general. And all of that was coming from the anthropology background mm-hmm so yeah I don't know I think I I still love history and anthropology um I think it just makes sense to me in a way that other things don't
0: yeah I mean I, I definitely get that I th- I think I connect with it more on the level of the of of learning through story um <clears throat> which I think I've always connected with on levels that I maybe didn't always understand because I'm I've always, and I still do, I'm not a big reader uh, because reading is very slow for me and I have to like reread several sections and just for it to connect, I'm, now that I've discovered the world of like audible books and like podcasts and stuff like that, I'm like, oh, this I love, like, and it's getting the same information, but I don't think it really clicked for me until I started doing this podcast and like what I love about it and what I love about it is learning everybody's like story and how like so many of us have a similar story, yet we still treat everybody as other. Um, <laughs> you know? yeah. um, and, and that's just like really super fascinating to me. And so mm-hmm. I can definitely relate to the story aspect. And I think that is why it's like, I love watching like Egyptian documentaries on like you know National Geographic when they're like diving into old tombs and stuff and like you said using like artifacts basically to tell their stories Mm -hmm. of the past um and I can see that thread in your collaborative work with Mm -hmm. Eleanor like basically trying to tell a story through the pieces you guys create um but how did so you started the art journey through photography mm-hmm. and essentially I think trying to tell a story through what <laughs> through the pictures you were taking um <laughs> what how did that grow from I mean you got started with photography how did it connect to woodworking um and sculpture that you do like now
1: um, well it started, yeah, at first I was like I'm going to be a travel photographer. I just have to learn how to use a camera. And then as I started taking classes, I learned about this whole world of fine art photography. Um, and also how small the travel photography world is. And it also it still felt like like why who am I to tell these stories? Like why should I? You know what I mean? Like what right do I have to this? And so then I I started doing portraiture, but it was of people that I had met in San Francisco in their homes. Um, and then it was still, I mean, all of it, like photo theory and and all the kind of discourse around photography is about the politics of representation. Mm -hmm. And so I got really into that. And then, yeah, I was at um, California College of the Arts and I, I had moved to Trader Joe's by this time. And I was working there as a manager and I was like, okay, I'm going to be here two years. I have all these credits. I'm going to get out really quick. And I'm not going to worry about the student loans because I'll pay it right back. And my first year, I took a woodworking class to fill an elective. And I was like, I'm just gonna learn to make frames, because those are expensive. And this will be great for me. And I just loved it. And I I thought, wait, maybe I'm better at communicating all this stuff in 3d than 2d. And I think I am. Um, As much as I loved portrait photography, and the kind of photography I was trying to do, I really loved it. And I still love it. But I'm not very good at it. I don't like telling people what to do, um, Mm -hmm. or posing people, or yeah, it's, yeah so um it just kind of happened accidentally and then once i started i also i mean i had amazing professors in the furniture i mean all all of my professors at cca were great but i had these really great models in furniture for what this work could be Mm -hmm. like donald fortescue was getting his phd um while he was teaching and all of his work was science-based and research-based and then barbara holmes was another one who was doing all this work she'd done this residency at the dump um, which is something I think there's, I think there's three in the nation, but there should be so many more, um, where you have access to the dump and you can go gather supplies. And so she was doing all of this work where she was using lath because it's just everywhere, it's you know ubiquitous in dumps. Um, and so yeah, I mean there were so many other people who were like this, who were you know teaching traditional furniture making, but then using those skills to do something completely different. Mm-hmm. And so that was, I think, because I had those examples of what you could do with this skill set. Um, It kind of gave me permission to make some really weird stuff.
0: (laughs) Um, I'm noticing like a thread through just in your telling of the story of this idea of like, what do I do with all of this information (laughs) that I've gone out and learned about? Um, And I would say like, even in, especially in the academic world of uh, woodworking, like, Mm -hmm it's still thought, and and you've kind of taken that route of, like, you go teach this. Like, that's the way you make money doing Hmm. this. Like, that's how you pay your bills. You teach it, and then you can do all this other stuff on the side. Um, And it feels like that's what you were saying about anthropology, too, is, like, the expectation is you go teach this.
1: Or you become an anthropologist. I mean, I know there are really cool. There are people doing really great stuff. You know, with cultural anthropology degrees, um, you know, working in major cities to work on, you know, public work stuff. Like there's, there's other routes. But as an undergrad and as someone who, again, to knew nothing about the world, um, those things weren't evident to me. You know, it was either archaeology or, you know, physical anthropologist or teaching it. Do you think
0: though? So? I mean. I think that's like a really actually, really excellent point because I know when I was getting ready to go to college, like the only knowledge I had of like being an artist or doing something that you like, you know, you create from your own mind was like, well, then you just, you have to like put it up in a gallery or you, like, go teach art at high school, or something like that, right, like, that was, like, the only paths that were ever talked about, um, well, and you better be a painter, yeah, (laughs) there are not other options, Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, like, it's, like, you don't, it's not talked about, I think, especially to our youth, like, even in, like, the public school system, you know, if you, if, it hasn't been cut if there's music and art that's taught it's never like it's taught as like well this is a creative expression you can do for yourself but not as a this is something you could actually go do Mm -hmm. like in life right like the things that were very clear and everything is focused on in school systems is like stem You can go be a doctor, you can be an engineer, you can be a lawyer. Like, it's like, these are the things like, because that has a clear, like you go get a four or eight or 12 year education, depending on what route you go to, but it has a clear end, right? It has a clear, like, and this is the salary you can expect to get. And like all of these things, but all of, there's so much more out in the world that people go and do (laughs) that has no clear path to getting to it.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think there's an an awareness now that the kind of creative thinking that comes from the creative fields has these really valuable applications in other fields, Mm -hmm. Um, but that's still not something that's, that's encouraged or discussed. I don't know. It's been a long time since I've been in, you know, right school, but yeah, I don't, I don't know that people are encouraged to do that kind of stuff. At the same time, my parents don't have advanced degrees. Like my mom has an associate's degree, my dad a bachelor's degree, so they didn't know either. Right. Yeah. Very few people in my family had advanced degrees at the time that I was applying for college. So yeah, they had, I mean, and I think also they're boomers. You know, they thought you go to college so yes. you can secure jobs, so you can start yep. saving.
0: Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, that's the same for like, you know, my my mom was like she got her degree to be a teacher while I was young. Like she graduated college when I was in third grade. So I watched that process, which probably helped like ingrain, like she went right because it's like, well, I can't find anything to support us if I don't go get a college degree. And therefore you Katie are going to go get a college degree Ah. and you're going to get it in something that's going to actually like, you know, pay. (laughs) um, And so it was like that there was no other Like route like it was like that is what you are gonna go do um and and it's like i came to this world of of woodworking and art like totally in a roundabout way (laughs) um
1: well i also i grew up believing that whole kind of mythology around Artists are like, you know, they're born, they're drawing from a young age, they're always doing that, they're always making something. I was not that person. I still can't draw. I've taken so many drawing classes. I can't do it. I don't like it. But I'm an artist, you know, and that's okay. Um, it took me a long time to even accept that that was right. I kept thinking, well, if I learn to draw, then I'll be an artist. I'm not going to. <laughs> that's not how I make things, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. Same here. I can draw, I can model something in CAD like that's I you know learned that in school it comes really super easy to me I think because I think in 3D um and always have which makes sense for like furniture a person who makes yeah. furniture like I think in 3D um so CAD programs have always been easy but you asked me to sketch it on paper and it looks like crap like <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting to have this conversation with my, uh, my oldest, my son, he's um, eight and he is a blossoming artist in the sketch realm. Like, like he really, he'll just sit down and like draw amazing made up creatures, you know, and he just, it's just amazing. And so I told him what I asked him once, I said, can you teach me how to draw? And he's like, wait. You can make things out of wood, but you can't draw that. doesn't make any sense to me. And I was like, oh, no, trust me. (laughs) It's like, it's a legit thing. Um, Yeah. So what did you do? I know, you know, now you do collab work, but what was your solo work like? What things did you focus on when you started doing your own work?
1: Um, I was still really interested in the kind of stories behind the, you know, creations of our, you know, our natural history, like our natural science fields. Um, And so I was doing a lot of stuff about archives and the creation of archives. Um, And so, yeah, like I made this cabinet that was around, based around a collection of pigeon feathers to talk about the, you know, what omission from a collection means and also what uh, inclusion means. And then the whole thing was built out of veneer. So it was like this really big cabinet that weighed like I don't know a pound maybe oh, um, wow. a full of pigeon feathers so it was stuff like that like everything was talking about how archival systems kind of determine the way that we categorize and the way that we assign value to objects and things in the world but all of those systems are based on this really um predatory history so yeah it was that it was that kind of thing I was making cameras everything was about representation and these these um categorical structures I guess
0: mm-hmm. Hey, makers, today's episode is sponsored in part by toolmomstore.com. At toolmomstore.com, you can find any and all tool-based merchandise for all genders, all sizes. They've got mugs, they've got shirts, all kinds of cool stuff. I have uh, one of the shirts myself that has the uh, hashtag WoodworkHer on it, and I also have a couple of the mugs that define what and who is a tool chick. So super excited with the merchandise that I have. I know that you will be satisfied as well. Um, and also, great discount for those of you who listen to the podcast. At checkout, if you enter the code MakerMom, you will get a 20% discount off any of the merchandise that you buy. So that's just toolmomstore.com. All right, let's head back into the action. I really want to understand more from you when you use the phrase uh, predatory history what do you mean by that <laughs> I mean
1: so the history of you know, like um, ethnography specifically like that you know grew out of imperialism people men um, going to other places and then taking things from those cultures explaining those cultures based on what they thought they saw um, and then kind of you know spreading that information to other western to western people right making that accessible through um what are those things called the um stereoscopes no you know those little stereo cards. yeah Yeah, yeah. like became really popular they were like in parlors you know um and a lot of that was like ethnography ethnographic information a lot of these people were armchair ethnographers so they didn't even go themselves um one of the things that you read and i think the beginning of most intro to anthropology classes is this Essay, I can't remember what it's called, but it's about like 1950s American culture, but it exoticizes everything. And so it sounds insane. It's like the women put their heads in ovens and this and that. And it's talking about like beauty regimens. Um, and it's just something that I think everyone who's, you know, in early college level courses should read so that they can get a sense of what exotic, you know, exotic, exoticization is. And um, yeah, that's what I mean by predatory. It's, you know, um, demeaning and, fetishizing other cultures um, and having no sense of what the implications of that might be
0: How do you see that play out now in the uh, <laughs> in the world of everything is just a keyboard type away or you know uh, uh, hey Google away from <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, I know that, you know, this is not something that we're done grappling with. Um, you know, like the SF, what, not the SF, the New York MoMA had this exhibition, when was it in the 90s, I think, where they were trying to talk about like tribal art and um, all of the, you know, major, like the, I don't know, most famous artists in the history of Western art who have been influenced by it. And it was just this huge misstep. They basically, it's yeah I don't know it was it was done so poorly and it basically like reified all of the kind of you know um ideology that had got, gotten us here in the first place um yeah I don't know it's it's hard because who is making that information available are the people are you know is it stories again told by outsiders mm-hmm. yeah I don't know
0: yeah I think that's um Maybe indulge me a bit because this is something I've actually been thinking a lot about just based on what I've learned through the stories of those I've had on the podcast Mm -hmm. and the idea of like, you know, somebody um, maybe honoring their heritage by bringing in, you know, certain pieces or certain design aesthetics. Um, and talking about, you know, and, and I know we talked a bit about this when I had you both on, but talking about, like, somebody who doesn't come from that culture, like, taking a piece of that, or being um, inspired by something of that culture, and then putting it in their own work and claiming it as their own.
1: Yeah,
0: like, <clears throat> I'm trying to wrap my mind around this, because, In some regards, it's like, I personally may be inspired by something, like, you know, from African art. Mm -hmm. Um, And if I pull, like, a shape or something from that art and put it into my own work, am I erasing that culture because I'm not African? Mm -hmm. you know like how to how to continue to because I look at it as like well I want to continue to push and grow my own art um and and usually that means for me personally the way I work is it's like it's a shape or a curve or a you know something like that that's like I want to explore more um but how do I bring honor to where it came from and not um, erase it, mm-hmm. but also still have access to using it. Like,
1: <laughs> no it's so hard. I mean, you're talking to another white person. So yes. yeah, I, yeah, and appropriation has been going on for, you know, so long and it's always, I mean, yeah, so much of, of like Western culture is, influenced by you know access mm-hmm. to and because, you know the visibility of other cultures so I, yeah I don't even know I mean I, I think it's something that if you're acknowledging and if you're aware of and if you're open about that you know it's like is it a, is it just one shape or one curve or is it a whole pattern is it a yeah
0: mm-hmm.
1: um yeah I don't know it's really <laughs> um, it's really tricky because
0: I'm thinking about it in context with some of the the work like that you and like your current show that you and Eleanor have um mm-hmm. and the pieces you put together and like where that came from mm-hmm. if you were to reflect on other if you were to reflect on through your work uh, appropriation like how do you do that with
1: <laughs> no still holding
0: with still holding the space, like I think. I mean, to your point, yes, it's we're two white people speaking to each other, but however, mm-hmm. I think this is the way it should be. Like, I don't want to put the burden on yeah. somebody from yeah. uh, somebody who is not white to speak for their whole ethnicity, like, that's not fair either. No. Yeah. Um, just like, I don't want to be a spokesperson for the queer community because that's not my role. I can tell, talk about my own experience, I can't talk about everybody else's experience, yeah. So, It's like, I think it is our role to try to bring light to that crappy history that unfortunately, whether our direct ancestors were a part of it or not, they still had a role in it. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think we it is our role to learn and grow and shine a light on it. But where's that line? Like, do you have when you guys are working on your collaborative pieces and you're exploring some of these things, or you even talked about how you bring up appropriation in your classroom, like how do you, how do you have those conversations or share that work?
1: I mean, we've definitely talked about it. We're just, yeah, I think that this particular body of work, we wanted the scope of it to be manageable you know like there's i mean even working with the wedgewood stuff there's a ton of wedgewood stuff that is you know highly appropriative there was this whole era of i think it's called chinoiserie where you know that suddenly some chinese cultural products left china and then everyone in europe was copying everything about them and just you know wholesale copying um And we thought about using some of those objects, or reflecting on them, but we're like, okay, now let's focus on this history of female makers. Um, And then maybe we broaden it out. Yeah. So and then, yeah, when we're teaching, we we look at a lot of artists from, you know, we look at African artists and talk about like, what are you seeing and why is that interesting to you? And, you know, when a student says, oh, I just love the colors. Oh, it's so exotic. We're like, okay, let's unpack that. Why do you, you know, what is, what do you mean by that? Where is that coming from? Um, Because we've had that one (laughs) come up before. Um, So yeah. And then we also try to talk about the, you know, direct appropriations that have led to some artists being celebrated as you know the great minds of the 20th century you know like Picasso's uh, you know invention I'm using air quotes again I'm using them a lot and this is going to be a podcast um, <laughs> <laughs> I probably start announcing it. um you know invention of cubism is a direct um appropriation of that the you know formal properties of African mass so he didn't invent anything he just noticed yes. it you yes. know and so I think those those are the kinds of conversations we're trying to have and in our own work we think about it a lot. Um, we haven't tackled it yet, but we are very conscious of the things that we're using as our references so that they are either, you know, like the, the, um, what is it called the Jasper pieces that we were using were, you know, a, um, a regurgitation of like Greek forms So you know, when everyone became suddenly became interested in, um, mm-hmm. Greek history. yeah. So yeah, I don't know. There's a I have a friend who is a DNA scholar and artist, Dakota Mace, who does a lot of work about appropriation um, and she does talks and stuff and I think. Yeah, she's, I, I would say, go read what Dakota's writing. <laughs> Look at her work. Go, if you can uh, find any of her lectures, she's she's a great person to listen to talk about this because she also talks about that whole, you know, mythology of the, the you know, vanish native um, and why that allows people to appropriate native iconography and patterns and feel nothing about that because they're not here anymore, right?
0: Um, yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like you pull from your days of anthropology studies a lot in um,
1: work? Less so now. I mean, I think I think it's always going to inform how I think about stuff because it was you know the training that I had before I ever started thinking about art, um, and then also yeah, learning to research as part of that um, experience has been really valuable. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know where we'll go with the next, you know, several bodies of work. But I think that it'll always shape how I think about the art world itself and representation and yeah, exposure. I mean, I'm really interested in who's in the collections of the institutions I'm looking at. You know, because of that, I think because of that training.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You 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 kind of touched on. You said like you were having a hard when you went off and traveled. You were having a hard time connecting all of this history you were learning to like what's going on in the current world (laughs) Uh, and how, unfortunately, that history continues to seemingly continues to repeat itself. Um, Why do you feel like that was hard? I think you use the word naive. Why do do you feel like you were naive?
1: I mean, I think um, I just was like, I I didn't have a family that had ever traveled. I'd never been anywhere, really. I don't think I'd left, I left California, I think once. Um, but yeah, I just, um, you know, we lived in a really small place and yeah, I just felt like I couldn't put the larger pieces together. And even, you know, living in San Francisco, I was exposed to all these other people and ways of living and, you know, and, and I still like, didn't know how to make sense of it or didn't know how to engage. And I think I could have done, like, I could have got what I needed from just being in san francisco and living a bigger life but i didn't know what i was looking for and the traveling was like well this is a way right this i'm just gonna go i'm just gonna go somewhere else and (laughs) um, be insignificant and and like talk to people and you know yeah so it was just the only way i could think of to gain that kind of to gain to to learn more about the world it was pretty
0: direct (laughs) so i mean growing up uh near fresno at least now or within recent history i know that area i mean it's still predominantly agriculture and um it has a pretty large influx of migrant workers Um, was that still i mean was that the case growing up like the people who had residency there were probably predominantly white but you had an influx of migrant workers when it came time for harvest
1: yeah, I mean there was a large Latinx population. And then yes, yes, many migrant workers. Um and yeah, and I think that's still the same way. I think there's um there was always a big Hmong population, a big Hindu population. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I the place where I grew up was so small. And we left there when we were in fifth grade, I think, to go to a Catholic school in Fresno. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. So and then I also I have an identical twin sister. And so we spent all of our time together. And yeah, I mean our friends, I think our friend group was diverse when we were kids, but we didn't really know what that meant. We didn't understand that there was anything different about us until I think we were much older. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: What is it with Catholic school? <laughs> so uh-huh. the the large amount of of people who now identify as queer, who grew up in Catholic <laughs> schools, like. <laughs> Wait,
1: Catholicism turns everyone gay. Um, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think my parents thought that we weren't getting a good enough education, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. And um, my grandma is very Catholic um, like hardcore Catholic. And my parents were still pretending to be religious at that point. And so, um, I don't, I don't know what they are now, but, um, yeah, so it was, you know, it was, it was the place to go, but there weren't any art classes there. It was all, you know, oh, just, yeah. yeah. Science, which was fine. Um, is that your, no, I don't know where that sound is. Oh, is it yours? Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And then we went to a Catholic high school, um, which was
0: fine. It was just, i don't know (laughs) well did that drive any because i mean to to be fair like any uh religious you know based school tends to have a lot of focus on like theology and stuff which definitely can feed very easily into like things like anthropology because it's really history Mm -hmm. is what you know at least history through their eyes um Mm -hmm. And so do you think that fed any of that, like, deeper narrative? I don't know. I mean, we had, it, it was weird,
1: like, Fresno is a conservative place, and yet in high school I had a handful of teachers who were doing some pretty progressive teaching. Like, now that I think back, it's pretty wild. I mean, our, our you know, religious, religion studies, whatever it was called, teacher, mm-hmm. was a nun who didn't wear a habit, um, and she taught... Yoga, and she talked a lot about Eastern religion. And um, yeah, it was very different from what I think a lot of other kind of Christian school um, religious studies classes may be. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, yeah, I had a couple of teachers like that who were, you know, we had a biology teacher who did not teach, you know, creationism or whatever. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I don't know how that happened. (laughs) um my English teacher was fantastic like I thought for a while that I wanted to be a writer um because of her so I don't I don't know but I also just didn't have a lot of models for women outside of those two who were confusing to me um for you know a life that wasn't you know married with children at some point so yeah I don't know I <laughs> I think just because I kept failing. So you know, I ended up where I am now, but it um, wasn't what I thought my life would be. But I was also really young. I mean, I graduated high school when I was 17, which is too young. I mean, at first someone as emotionally immature as I was. Um, I know not everyone's like that, but for me, I should have been held back a year. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um. So through all of this, I understand like your, through your failings, your professional (laughs) progression to getting to what you are or where you're at now. Mm -hmm. Uh, I guess what about personally, like, you know, did going out and traveling, how do you feel like that? I don't know, move the needle on, you know, from naive to really understanding, I mean, it was,
1: I mean, it, yeah, I think that's good for anyone. You have to, I don't know, the first, like, couple trips I did were to Europe to visit friends I knew who were there um, or to Australia, um, and I was very afraid to travel alone. Like, it didn't occur to me that that was something I could do, and it also, I mean, the going in the first place was, like, you know, I felt, like, such a failure, and I I really, like, I was pretty severely depressed throughout all of this, and, and um, the self-loathing was... Crippling. Um, and so it was, you know, doing something that I thought I was incapable of doing was the biggest part at first. Um, and then I went, yeah, the first trip was to Australia to visit a friend who um, was from there who I'd met because he was an exchange student. And he was like, come for a month, we'll, we'll do all this stuff. And I got there and I thought that he would just be available and like hold my hand and we do right. everything together. And he was like, no, I have two jobs and I'm coaching a soccer team. And No, you have to go on your own. And so I spent the majority of the time, like we had, we did some stuff together and then I hung out with his mom a lot. And then the last week there, I was like, okay, I should really, I should just go do something. And so I went up North for a week by myself. And then the next trip was to Paris because a friend was doing a summer there. And I got there, and she met a dude and bailed on me. And, so I it alone. and like I didn't have very much money, and so I just walked everywhere. And I figured out that, okay, that's a thing you can do. You don't have to pay for much if you just walk everywhere. Um, and then, yeah, I went to Europe one more time and did, like, the drinking tour of Europe. Um, and then I realized that that wasn't what I wanted my trips to be. Um, and I also realized if I didn't go to Europe, I could go for longer. And so then I started going to um, – less developed countries. And yeah. And it was, it was, you know, a lot of just meeting people. Like I learned to trust older women. They were, you know, in Thailand in particular, I couldn't figure out how to cross the street because it, nobody stops. You have to like weave through traffic and, you know, an older woman would grab my arm and say, let's go. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and So I'd like find women who were running guest houses and I'd stay with them. And then like in the evenings we'd talk and yeah. So I just, I learned a lot about the world. By just being in a place where nobody knew who I was and I would just talk to people. And um, yeah, I also encountered the first anti-American sentiment that I'd ever, like I knew about it. Obviously we'd just gotten through the Bush years, um, but I was asked questions that I couldn't answer um, by people I was staying with or people I met about, you know, why, why did your country elect Bush? Why do you guys keep intervening in countries like ours? And um, so yeah, it was a lot of food for that and a lot of just growing and, um, yeah, figuring out what kind of person I didn't want to be. And then also realizing that I was capable of a lot more than I thought.
0: Mm-hmm. Hey makers. So today's podcast episode is sponsored in part by Alicia Van Osdall, who is the owner of Basil Blue Design Company. Alicia is a maker of all things, really. Her focus is on beautiful craftsmanship through woodworking, repurposing, refinishing art and sculpture. Her background includes 30 years of graphic design, logos and branding. If you have an idea or concept that and need a creative solution or graphic design, you can email Alicia directly at Alicia and that is A-L-I-C-I-A at basilblue.com or you can visit her website at www.basilblue.com. And fun fact, Alicia actually designed the logo for Crafting Revolution. So that is an example of the impeccable work you can expect if that is something you are in the market for. So be sure to look up Alicia again at her website, basilblue.com. All right, let's get back into the action. I'm curious, and you obviously have the right to not share, but I'm curious at what point um, you had an understanding of your own identity as far as uh, queerness.
1: Oh, God. I came out and then like went back in the closet so many times. Um <laughs> Well, the twin sister is confusing. Like I was pretty sure it was queer, but then my sister isn't. And I was like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Um, it's genetic, right? Like that. And then I also, you know, I was dating guys who looked like women, like pretty hairless from the neck down, you know what I mean? Like I was, but then I like, didn't actually want to have sex with them. Um, and so I kept like, I would tell a small group of friends and then I would meet someone and I was like, well, I'm kind of into them. I guess maybe I'm not gay. Um, and this happened over and over and then start dating. I was like, well, I'm not really into this. Um, so this happened several times (laughs) and then finally, um, yeah, finally, I, I was like, this is, I mean, it's clear, it's obvious. I know what I do. And, um, yeah. And so then I finally just started talking about it openly on Instagram, but it's been something that most of the people really close to me have known for a really long time. Um, Yeah
0: known as in like knew it without you telling them or you know, as no no
1: no I told it. a lot of people um yeah Eleanor just cracked up um <laughs> yeah it
0: was something I
1: mean it was also I think yeah, you know at the end of the day I really like flirting too like it's just fun and I only ever have dated people that I've met organically you know so I like in school and at work or wherever um and so I've never had to make a dating profile or you right. know what I mean <laughs> yeah um, I also didn't know any queer women until I lived in San Francisco, like up until that um, I only knew gay men and I thought they were great, but I was like, well, that's weird. Why would you want that? Um, <laughs> and then also I think growing up Catholic, I, you know, was taught that it was a perversion. Okay. And I internalized that. And, you know, when I started meeting gay women, I thought what they had was beautiful, but I still thought in me, it was disgusting. And that okay. took a long time to, get outside of and, um, and kind of
0: unsee, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, the internal internalized homophobia is a real thing.
1: <laughs> uh, I, was, I was like, I know I don't see this in other people. Why is this? Why, what is this about? How do I get, you know? Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, that's also interesting. The, the fact of having an identical twin sister made you question it more, <laughs> like, yeah,
1: yeah, I was like, have I just not met the right person, right, um, and then I was also, you know, like, the, the last, you know, what, 20 years, 17 years, have been pretty wild, like, it's been non-stop stuff, and so I haven't been looking for a partner, you know, they just kind of come and gone, um, so, yeah, yeah,
0: does your, did your sister end up in anything art-related,
1: she did it kind of she studied some creative stuff after she got a communications degree um, and then she um, did some graphic design stuff like I think she got an associate some kind of degree in that um, and now she works in the um, tech industry. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, <laughs> <I'm> totally not. <laughs> not really, no, I mean it's creative work, and she really yeah. loves it. Um, but yeah, not quite. And and I mean, all of this started for me well after she was kind of working in her chosen field and had you know begun to establish a career. And so, yeah, but they're huge supporters. I mean, both of my sisters are. Um, a huge part of my life and and um, uh, anything I can't well we never sell artwork we've talked about that but it goes to their houses <laughs> I keep giving it here's this giant thing that will you can never move because it weighs too much and it's gonna hang on your wall um, <laughs> happy
0: wedding <laughs> yes <laughs> well, that feels that feels like legit for me like yeah. I've got um, I'm a maybe a little bit more fascinated about twins than others just because I have twin younger sisters um oh, identical they are not they are fraternal um and so like i mean obviously everybody's their own individual person but it's like uh, when most people meet them they they're like you can tell they're sisters but not that they're twins um because they're just so drastically different from each other <laughs> in 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 looks and in personality but i've also noticed it's like they are their like they're each other's built-in bff like Mm -hmm. always um and i'm almost 17 years older than them so i tend to fill a role of more like a second you know an additional parent versus Mm -hmm. like sister um but still it's one of those things of like i don't know watching that and their relationship and then yes they were like i had a patreon just for my in like i have one for podcasts but i had one just for my individual like freeman furnishings for a long time and they were like my only two patrons oh, <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. That's or um, it's like i have these things around that i haven't been able to sell like forever so here you go yeah christmas <laughs>
1: No, but twins are so weird. I'm intrigued by twins too. Yeah. Like my mom's an identical twin, also. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, haven't met, I haven't met any other twins that have that. Um, I think it's pretty pretty rare. But she hated being a twin when she was growing up because you know they came from. I mean, her family was was you know poor. They didn't mm-hmm. have a lot, and so she hated that they were treated like one person and they had names the whole bit, you know, they got one, like one gift. It was one coloring book that they shared on Christmas, that kind of thing. And so when she had twins, she had all these rules. Like nobody could call us twins. She didn't want us to know she wanted us to dress differently. And so we found out our first day of like preschool or something that we were twins and we were so proud of it. And we came home and told her, we're like, guess what? We're twins. And she was so (laughs) bummed out. Um, but yeah, twins, I mean, they're, I think that's part of why I failed so epically when I first left for college is like, twins are efficient. We, yeah. you know, we did things for each other that we didn't realize that we did for each other. Like Stephanie was a social butterfly and always has been, and she made friends. And then I made friends with those friends through her. Like I right. didn't have any social skills whatsoever. Um, and that was something that I learned when I was not, was without her, you know? Right. <laughs> it was really hard. Um, I was, Yeah. And so, I mean, I didn't learn to read until third grade because Stephanie didn't, did it for me and nobody knew. And I feel like there was stuff I did for her and I can't think of anything right now, but there was this like symbiotic relationship where, you know, if one could do one thing, then both of us didn't have to. Yeah, no. So
0: yeah, um, it was, uh, I mean, and I see that, <clears throat> I see that in my sisters in like a lot of ways too. Um, whereas like, you know, the one who's like the oldest by like three minutes, like, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> Is like a true oldest too, which is really intriguing to me because I'm the oldest, but like her and I are very similar in that, like, cause she's the new oldest, right? Like yeah. I left home and they were like two, yeah. <laughs> you know, so they, I wasn't really around, but um, it's just really interesting to watch the dynamic between the two of them. And yeah, I could totally see some of that between them being very efficient and like one of them is definitely more of a social butterfly and mm-hmm. then the other one comes along and is friends with all of the anchor like, friends like yeah totally see that yeah yeah um is that I guess what you mean when you say too about the being naive when you left like it maybe just having that relationship and that
1: That's probably part of it. I mean, no, like Stephanie had her own struggles when she went to school. So it's not, you know, like, oh, like, Mm -hmm. I think that's part of it. I think we were really sheltered, like the high school and the um, grade school that we went to, they were really small. And I think um, we just didn't see, I don't know, like in a larger high school, I think you have friends who have harder lives maybe, or, you know, encounter drug problems, or, I don't know what, we didn't really have that because it was such a small school. It was private. It was, it was expensive. As far as I can tell, it was quite expensive. Um, you know, I had one friend who committed suicide our senior year, but other than that, we didn't see a lot of the kinds of things that, you know, allow, force you to think beyond
0: your tiny world, you know, I would say maybe to some degree though, I think you need to be fair to maybe your younger self in general in the sense of um, teenagers are not great at noticing the world around them. (laughs) I'll do that, yeah. Um, They're pretty Um, (laughs) self-absorbed. There's probably a lot of that going on too. Yeah, I mean, mean, even into your young 20s, right? Like, I think that because my sisters are 23 now, and so sometimes what they will say like in response to stuff like I'll have to stop myself and just be like yep remember you were a selfish asshole at that age too oh. <laughs> you know well there's some people who aren't
1: there's are some people who are so mature and, and really I guess wise beyond their years but I do think they're the anomalies I think the rest of us have to get there on our own but I think yeah. that's why that's like I think that's a big part of why I really want to teach so I think this is the age range where I struggle the most where I you know and so I have a lot of compassion for people in their you know late teens and early 20s it's a really hard time to be a human it you is know, it's really
0: hard so yeah. yeah people don't talk about even the fact that like the human brain isn't fully developed until you're 25 like uh-huh. you're probably doing a lot of like cramping in the de- brain development and thought development like in those years yep um how do you feel like you as individually like personally like what's your I guess favorite thing about getting like what do you love imparting upon like your students
1: (laughs) oh god I don't know um You mean like just life lesson kind of stuff, or
0: yeah, just or in even just I mean with the woodworking and stuff too, like because I think actually there's a lot of life lessons you learn just through woodworking. But
1: um. (laughs) I guess like something that I that I think is talked about a little bit more in institutions that we've talked about too is like you know in art making and 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 everything in life like it's okay to be really bad at something and keep doing it. Like for so many of us, that's the path to becoming really good at it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The expectation that anyone is naturally good at anything. And if they aren't, they should quit and try something else. I think it's so damaging.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah. I really believe in that.
0: Um, Do you see that? I'm, I'm curious because I think, um, especially younger, I guess I've noticed it in my own kids, like this natural belief. It's like, I don't know where you get this. So I can only think that it's something that as a young child, you just naturally believe about the, if I do it once and it's crappy, I should never, ever do it again. Mm -hmm. Like it's the expectation that it should be perfect. And if I'm not perfect at it from the very first time, therefore I will this is not something I'm meant to do. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if that just comes from a young mind, or if it's more about these younger generations Mm -hmm. Um, because I guess I feel like growing me personally growing up the focus felt from my outward environment was like more focus on like no it's actually more important that you just continue to try versus like it being perfect I don't know
1: I mean, I feel like too, well, I mean, as part of this though, the curated life that's available online, yeah. you know, the access to other people's worlds is all curated. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think the other part of that too, is that none of us are ever done learning and you may never feel like a fully formed adult, you know? Yes. Um, cause I feel like that's with the, you know, the generation that you and I grew up in, it was, yeah, keep trying, keep trying, but eventually you'll be an adult with a, you know, all of, all of this stuff figured out and you're done learning. And I think that's one of the biggest problems with yeah. people in the boomer generation is that they think they're done learning. <laughs> uh, yes. You know, uh, not all of them, certainly, but I've seen it a lot personally.
0: Yes. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I would agree. I've seen it a lot personally, too. Mm-hmm. Like this idea of just like, I continue to like, like I said, listen to podcasts, or read books, and it's like, Just, I'm continually evolving, like, even how I think about the world or like interactions with people and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And to your point, I do say I probably will die not knowing what I want to be when I grow up. (laughs) Like, (laughs) (laughs) that's fine. (laughs) You know, because I really don't. Like, I'm like, okay, you know, I turned 40 this weekend and I'm still like, what do I want to be when I grow up? I don't know. But also, are you really enjoying the life that you have? Because I think that's the important thing, right? I don't know. I'm one of those, like, yeah, don't get inside my crazy mind. I'm one of those <laughs> people who's, like, who's always like, well, I'll be happy when I accomplish this thing. And then once I've accomplished that thing, it's like I, I just set the bar higher. Uh-huh. Like, no, I'll be happy when I do this thing. <laughs> <And> <laughs> Not very good at stepping back and like acknowledging moments of success and like when things are going well. Like I'm not really good at like stepping back and realizing that.
1: It's <laughs> I mean, hard. At least you have yeah your your younger sisters and all the people in your life to like celebrate those things. You know. Yes. Yes.
0: When they're not being selfish little assholes. <laughs> It's fair to say they will not listen to this episode, so I can say that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. What are you hoping to, um, I know, I believe you guys are kind of starting to look, residency is over Mm soon-ish. So what are you hoping to move on to? Still wanting to teach and and go that, that route?
1: Yeah, yeah, there's a couple of uh, teaching applications that have just opened for sculpture positions. So we're getting our stuff together for those. And then, yeah, there are a couple of year long residencies that we'll be applying for. But I think more than anything, we'd really love to just stop moving quite so much and to settle into uh, you know, a, a longer term teaching position in order to wait out the big sculpture jobs that we know are gonna open in the next five years or so. Um, yeah. I mean, some stability would be great. Like we would love to have our own little shop that we can, yeah, not move anymore. It's so expensive to move across the country over and over yes. when you have so much stuff. So yeah, we'll see. I mean, there's, yeah, our, our, we know we have a thing in San Diego coming up soon, which will be great because my sisters are both in LA. Um, but we definitely like a longer term situation. So fingers crossed. Yeah. Longer
0: term and uh, perhaps more populated. Oh, yes. Yes.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah. The two sculpture jobs we're applying to first are ones in New York and ones in Savannah at at SCAD actually, which is a huge school. So yeah, we are definitely not doing the rural thing again for us. (laughs) Um,
0: Yeah. Well, you learned that,
1: right? It's like... (laughs) No, we did really needed to know, and I'm glad we didn't learn it by going somewhere where, um, yeah, this was a long, long long-term opportunity
0: where we just felt like we couldn't leave. So, yeah, yeah, Yeah. I kind of really love the the story of you guys, so that you're still looking to like be in it together. Like that's that's, yeah, you know, that's not necessarily. I wouldn't say that's something that you see. I think it's great that you guys have figured out this collaboration and that your work is better together. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, and we're better together. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's awesome. Um, So I hope that you can continue to find those spaces.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think people are more open to the idea of co-teachers now than ever before, but it's definitely... I think going to be an argument or we're going to have to make a case for it over time, but we'll get there.
0: Yeah. Did you have to make a case for it for this residency? No, Um, because we knew BA personally and she
1: was, and I mean, I, she offered it out to me and I was like, well, we're doing this thing. And she was like, that sounds fun. Okay. I mean, it was just (laughs) so easy. Um, Yeah. So no, not really. I mean, it was the logistical side of, you know, paperwork and stuff like that was, was the only thing. And also we don't, this doesn't come with insurance. So we didn't, that would have been the hard part. Like yeah. any job that we take right now, like, yes, we'll split the pay, but the insurance is going to be the one we have to really fight for.
0: Yeah. So, so yeah. That's a valuable, that's a, a very good point. Well, uh, <laughs> it's just, oh, God, this country and in insurance. Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we're all in. um, yes. Yeah, to have an advanced degree and be teaching at a university and not have insurance is just like a, wow, what a cool position to be in.
0: Well. Have you looked at Canada?
1: <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy how many countries are not dealing with this. I know that everyone who visits here is like, wait, you're what, what, what is this stupid? Yeah. What is this stupid system you guys have?
0: Yeah. Um, I know. yeah. It's, it's <laughs> capitalism at its best. Not its um, mind. <laughs> all right. Well, we're getting at the end of our time. So I want to let you have a chance to tell people where they can find you.
1: Yeah, um, I think Eleanor. What is it, ladies who would at lady? Yeah, at ladies who would on Instagram. <laughs> I'm at stacy.mott.art and yeah, someday we'll have a website.
0: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. if people uh, tired of us. Yeah, um, and of course I'll share all that out um, and put it in the show notes so people can find you easily. Um, Thanks for doing the individual conversation with me, and thanks for inviting us. It's been very cool. Yes, you know, I think you're at an unfair advantage, or perhaps fair. Like Eleanor didn't have you in the background of oh, no. <laughs> well, support.
1: I know <laughs> day off yesterday. Um, although she did text me immediately after and say it was great. It was like talking to an old friend. So yeah.
0: <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for chatting with me today. Yeah, same. All right. Again, that was Stacey Mott. I will include the links on how you can follow along with her in the description for today's episode. So you can find that in whatever podcast app you are listening to this on. Or if you happen to be watching this on YouTube, you can find that in the description box below. Another place you can find it is head on over to freemanfurnishings.com forward slash podcast. And I have all the episodes there, including all the links. So uh, an easy one-stop shop over there. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure to uh, follow, subscribe, and review, especially on iTunes and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and share with a friend. Let them know uh, that you are enjoying this podcast featuring fantastic female and non-binary makers. Follow along again over at Instagram at Crafting a Revolution. And while you're there following along the podcast, you can find me also, your host, Katie, at Freeman Furnishings on Instagram or Freeman Furnishings Uh, That is where you will find me up to my shenanigans of power carving, dyeing wood, all kinds of crazy colors, uh, occasional resin, and definitely some shop dances happening. So you can find me again at Freeman Furnishings and FreemanFurnishings.com. It is Wednesday. I hope you all are having a fantastic week so far. I just got back from vacation, so I am feeling fully rested. I had a great time on Lake Michigan with the family, and uh, now I'm getting ready to hop right back into the thick of it. All right, so I will see you all on Friday with another brand new episode, and as always, let's go craft a revolution. Perfect dead, got something they wanna say Solution for the toxic masculinity, pollution Is the constant evolution